When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win, earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. This is The Rock Podcast. My friends know that I'm a rock historian, producer, and best-selling author with thousands of interviews I've collected over the years. Usually I, I go to my archives, pull out a bunch of audio clips from those interviews or one of the thousands of uh, shows I've produced. Then we mix in some new interviews so we can bring you the greatest stories in rock and roll as told by the artists themselves. Now, in this episode, we have a brand new interview with John Waite. You know him from The Babies, Bad English, the song Missing You, number one song, as a matter of fact, Ringo's All-Star Band, and, and many other things. This is the first time I've had a chance to speak with John in almost 45 years since I first met him when I produced the Babies Live at the Tower Theater record in 1977. We dug deep with John in this very candid interview and informative conversation. We covered a lot of areas of his life, beginning with the Babies, then Bad English, the supergroup uh, he had with Neil Schoen of uh, Journey, Jonathan Kane, Dean Castronovo, and bassist Ricky Phillips, as well as his time with uh, Ringo, while part of the uh, All-Star Band. We also talked about John's recent acoustic album series, Wooden Heart, his forthcoming documentary titled The Hard Way, his current tour plans, and more. So here is part one of my interview with John Waite. Now, now I don't expect you to remember. I hardly remember, but here's the story. Okay, yeah. I was a I was a, a music director at a major station in Philadelphia, in 1976, and I got invited to the Barclay Hotel to see uh, a video by Mike Mansfield and this new band that nobody ever heard of, and they played this, and everybody went crazy. And I said, you know what? This is one of the best things I've ever heard. I'm going to go back and play it immediately. And we started playing it. And Philly is one of the markets where you started to erupt. But I'm the one that went to Chrysalis and said, we should do a live concert. Let's do the babies live at the tower. I'm the producer of Live at the Tower. I've got a copy of that. Yeah, I well, you might, I, my name's on the back. Uh, just a minute, let's celebrate this properly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'm listed as research director or something, but I, I was really yeah. a co-producer, co but. Uh, yeah, all right. Yeah. My name on the back? Let me have a look. In the credits? Uh, right below Sonny Fox. Sonny Fox. This is Brian Christian. Oh, yeah, Denny. Denny. Yes, there I yeah. am. That's me. I'm, Thank the only, you. I'm the only one still alive. Uh, no. Anna, that's me. That's me. You and me so, both. I, I, I thought you'd like that story because I've been yeah, a big, no, it's, it's, big booster. It's funny. Yeah. yeah. No, no, we appreciate that. I mean, uh, Philadelphia was uh, a massive uh, leg up for us. That was one of the first places we broke. 
So I appreciate yeah. that. Well, I'm glad I got a chance to say thanks. There yeah. you go. Thank you very much. I'm sorry I haven't had a chance to tell you that in the last 40 years, but okay. Well, you know, if what goes, you know, you just like sometimes you get those windows that open up like the twilight zone. Right. And you can actually step forward and make something right or say something to somebody years in advance. It just sort of comes around like that. Yeah. So did did you get that album recently or have you had it for years? Oh no, that's the one they gave me at Chrysalis. I've got like three copies. Oh, okay, good. Uh, and that's the ones they gave me in 1977. I, I treasured that. Okay. Was, uh, it's a good recording. It is, it is. It's funny, I usually uh, I thought, would have thought by now Chrysalis would have put it out as a regular record like most of these. Well, it has. It's, oh, it, they I, have. The box, there's a box set came out that's pretty, not very well done, but it's oh. a book set that came out a couple of years ago or last year, and it's on there. So oh, okay. Well, nobody weird. told me. <laughs> well, you should ring them up and ask for royalties. You know? Uh, no, I don't want any royalties. Anyway, no. I, I'm glad to be talking with you. I'm glad we got this together because this Thank is going to be obviously. You know, I know your whole history, so we're going to have to cover some things here. Sure. And uh, I know the real story, so you're not going to. No, no, my no. God. <laughs> I'll, buy, I'll buy the negatives. No. <laughs> So, okay, so I know we're here. We're going to talk a little bit about the Wooden Heart Anthology because the volume three just came out. The other two have been right. out for a while. When yeah. did this idea to do this come to you or did you just release one and then say, you know what, I'm going to do another? Was it planned or did it just happen as you went along? No, well, I went in the studio to record some electric songs with the pandemic being what it was. I was really stir crazy and I decided it was time no matter what right. uh, to go back in. I just damned the torpedoes, you know? Yeah. And uh, I spent two weeks trying to record two songs I couldn't catch. And one of them was like a mega uh, sonic kind of thing that turned into sort of like revolution number nine at the end, but, <laughs> but jazzy and uh, interesting song. And, um, but I couldn't make it work. I might go back soon and listen to it again and it'll, and it'll open up. Hmm. But I was, uh, I'd spent about 20 grand over two weeks on musicians, the studio. Right. And I just thought, well, it's not going to work, you know? And then as I was sort of like viewing my options, I thought, well, you know, you don't want to leave after all that effort without, and I thought I'd cut some acoustic songs. I just thought I'd see what happened. Mm -hmm. And there was the Dylan song, Not Dark Yet. Right. And uh, that's always been in the back of my mind for something to do. And I think maybe you get screwed up to sort of a different pitch with being in lockdown. I mean, you'll probably go over Niagara Falls in a barrel, you know, just for something to do, you know? Right, yeah. And I, and I kind of felt like um, if I was ever gonna cut that song, that would be it. And I cut it. And um, it was very quick, like only a couple of takes. And uh, I stood back and looked at it and I thought, well, that's, that's, that's about as good as you can get. Right. And I decided I would add uh, some more songs to it and release Wooden Heart Volume 3 mm -hmm. as part of a three CD set, one, two, three. So now all the Wooden Heart songs and the new songs are one, they're one release. And okay. it was uh, it was easy. I mean, I cut the whole, uh, all the acoustic songs, I cut six new songs, six or recut or whatever it was. Right. In a in a day, two days, possibly two. Was this, and a half. A, was this in LA? Yeah, I got a studio that I more or less live at called the oh. Dog House. Okay, and it's over in Woodland Hills, but it's like a very very quiet. There's a main house, and then there's a studio across this sort of Zen garden. Right. And if they want to find you, anybody, it's going to be tough. When you go there, you can really, and they have a really great Indian restaurant about four blocks away. <laughs> and of this course. guy, Ricky my drummer, he has a dog. So I go and play with his dog and write songs and record them. You know, it's basically, uh, it's the reverse of big time. It's a very lovely studio and the engineers are great. Uh, but it's not like going into Hollywood. I can't mm. really deal with that. You know, I like the thing about going into some, uh, like a really it's just like i just go in and create right. and nobody there's no fanfare i can focus completely but yeah the doghouse and i, okay. I just you know it's, it's like a, a three cd release um you know the last I'd, i've never seen anybody release a triple 
acoustic CD. So, uh, you know. Yeah, who, who do you think you are, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm going to smack <laughs> myself around. You know, it's, I just, I, it was just an inspired thing. Right. It was just, I think it was powered by uh, the Dylan uh, bootleg right. series. You know, right. I, I think I saw myself doing that as I was thinking, because that had been a pivotal record for me, the first one. Right. And I thought, I think probably I was, I was inspired by that. You know, why not put three albums out? Right. Yeah. So, uh, as far as the covers go, were these songs like uh, Catch the Wind, were these just favorites of yours over the years? Or how did well, you decide? I, I had it recorded. I, that was one that I had in my back pocket. I recorded that in Wales hmm. about six years ago at Full Studios, which is Motorhead. Uh, no, um, uh, yeah. What's uh, Hawkwind? Uh, Hawkwind's bass player um, has a studio there. Right. Uh, he's a bass player and he has a motorcycle. Typical Hawkwind stuff, you know. Middle of <laughs> right. nowhere in Wales, you know. Middle space, of nowhere. Space ritual, yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. <laughs> Silver machine, baby. And uh, the best. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just great. And uh, Stacey. Yeah. And uh, and he has this thing. It's like a big main house, like a cottage, terrace cottage, quite spacious, where the bands stay. And then there's a cow shed. It's a really good studio. And me and a friend of mine, Woody, went down there on a trip back to England and just recorded for the night. Mm. And uh, I did uh, Wallflower by Dylan and Catch the Wind. And uh, Catch the Wind always stuck with me. So, I, you know, I just put it on Wooden Heart. It was just meant to be there, you know. So they were, and, and the outside song, the other one that I did was Not Dark Yet, you know, the Dylan song. Right. Did you, and, uh, uh, by the way, did, do you know Donovan? Uh, no, I've never met him. Oh, okay. my girl, my girlfriend loves him. I mean, it's like every time she's left to just work the stereo, she, you, you you hear a lot of Donovan, you know. And um, but uh, Reedy River and all that stuff. Right. Uh, the the box set, you know, that flower. Yeah. What, to a flower a to a garden. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. remember seeing that in a in a in a record shop window with a beautiful cover. It was one of the first box albums I ever saw. That's I couldn't right. afford it. I That's couldn't right. afford it, but but Reedy River really was lovely you know and um donovan's a one-off you know he's just a one-off yeah. yeah okay so you're you know, touring uh, solo then oh yeah okay i've been doing that for well i've been doing it non-stop i haven't right. really been in a since bad english really so yeah. i'm still, we're actually playing this saturday night at indiana state fair oh okay and who's, um, in, who's in your band well, Tim Hogan, he's been my bass player for like 20 years. And uh, we've got Roger Carter, uh, who's a fairly on the scene LA drummer. And uh, an unknown that you, it's just really, uh, we kind of discovered him, Mark Rashardi. He's a, a guitar player. But we've had uh, Kyle Cook in the band from mm -hmm. Matchbox 20. Right. And he's going to get up and play at the fair. He's on the same bill, so we're probably going to play the set. But, um, it's not really so much a, a, a revolving door. It's just that we add people, right. you know, we double up the guitars when, when we're going out to some really big festival and hit it as hard and as loud as we can. But the other stuff is just three piece really. And me, it's like an evening with, it's more like a wooden heart evening, you know? Right. Well, do you do uh, some acoustic numbers by yourself in the set? Yeah, yeah I really do. We, I mean, we try and do like, we do catch the wind right. and, um, we do like also uh, Girl from the North Country. We do Isn't It Time by the Babies, which is right. extraordinary unplugged. Right. That's on Wooden Heart. Missing You, uh, Back on My Feet. It's more or less the same set, but with about a third more acoustic songs. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised the reaction it gets when you actually attempt Isn't It Time or every time I think of you on the acoustic. I mean, the audio, it's an impossible thing to do, but yeah. it becomes its own thing, you know. And uh, the audience love it because you're giving it everything you got. And mm -hmm. it's like the original's got backup singers, three African-American girls, a brass section, a string section, and the babies playing rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly there's just me. So I like the irony, the kind of like, uh, here we are now and it's unplugged. Right. I, I like that. It's, it seems arty, you know. So uh, what do you, do you have plans now for a next record? Or will there be a volume well, it, four of early, this? 
Yeah, no, this I've been completing songs. I got this cassette player, this from Radio Shack that I bought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bought I, I'm, I'm with you. I, oh, I'm, no. I'm, st I'm still annoyed they took the cassette player out of my car. No, it's it's terrible. I used to have I used to have one of those flat ones, you know. Yeah, right. And uh, I I I I bought one of those and I was in the babies and I was on tour with that. Mm -hmm. I had blonde on blonde. Right. And desire. And then I had uh, rough mix Pete Townsend and Ronnie Lane. Right. And uh, probably some Paul McCartney. I don't know, but. But that's all I listened to on this little cassette player. And it was quite good, you know, you go into a room and plug it in. But anyway, yeah, they have this tiny version of it with a cassette in that's got like 60 songs on it that mm. I just, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and listen to them or record into it. And I got all these songs, but I got a couple that are wicked. You know, I think they're really good songs and I just keep mm -hmm. avoiding it, you know? Right. But I think it's going to be like volume four of Wooden Heart, but without being part of the Wooden Heart trilogy. I got you. It's going to be musically like that, but it won't be part of the wooden heart thing. And I think it might involve more instrumentation. Yeah. Uh, but maybe different colors, you know, I'll try and take it further out. I have no idea. You know, I say that okay. to you now. Yeah. I said that to you now, but I, you go in the studio, you plug in, the vibe's completely what it is, and you right. follow it. You know? Right, right, right. So just for those that don't know, uh, the original babies were together for what through till 1980. I mean, there were one or two changes, I know, but 81. The original, 81. Yeah. Well, I the original babies split something like 78, right? 79. I mean, Mike Corby was fired, right? Uh, and then we had Jonathan Kinn and Ricky Phillips in, and we toured the head first record, they right. weren't on that. And then we made Union Jacks, and then we toured again for another year. And then the shit hit the fan, really. It was like we weren't going anywhere. So we made one more record and broke up almost immediately after that. You know? And what did you do immediately after that? Because you didn't form Bad English right away, did you? No, I I, uh, I, uh, I went back to England. I got married. I lived in the countryside in a terrace cottage in a tiny village. And I didn't answer the phone. And um, about five, six months later, some lawyers got me. Oh, I, I came back. That's it. It's getting such a big story. That's okay. We're, we want the real story, so take your time. Yeah, no, okay. Well, I came back to, uh, I did a solo album for Chrysalis in New York City. Right, I remember that. And with Ivan Kroll from Iggy Pop and Patti Smith mm -hmm. and uh, Bruce Brody from Lone Justice. It was a good band. And uh, after two years of living in New York, put the record, after a year, put the record out and Chrysalis kind of dropped the ball and uh, I just got on a plane and went home. But I love New York and it changed the direction of my life. And uh, me and Ivan kept writing. He came over to England to visit me, me and my wife at the time and stayed over and we wrote more songs. And uh, a couple of lawyers got me off Chrysalis. It was a very hard thing to do, but I got off mm -hmm. at great expense. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went back to America to EMI and they opened the checkbook and 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 their arms. They 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 really got it, you know. They really got it, and they wanted me on the label, and they gave me a really big deal. And um, it was like being born again. I mean, I then that album contained a lot of Ivan songs that I'd written in New York, and me and Gary Myrick wrote a few, and uh, I wrote Missing You at that point, and everything changed. I mean, it was just like black and white. Mm -hmm. I mean, instead of being beaten down at Chrysalis and, uh, you know, just yearly bad news about record sales, I suddenly sold a couple of million records, you know, and was nominated for a Grammy and also, it was like overnight, yeah. overnight I was back. I know, obviously I know you heard, heard yourself with the babies on the radio, but do you remember the first time you heard Missing You on the radio? Yeah, I think I was doing Paper Dolls. I did a TV show, I guested on it. Um, with Nicolette Sheridan and um, uh, there was a couple of really big stars on it. But he had a, 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 every every week would be somebody new that was different. But they wrote me into the script and I was like a, a character for like a month. Oh, John Way, you know. Right. And um, But I was in the studio and the phone rang and I was waiting to go in front of the cameras. It was my manager saying, you're number one. 
Mm. And I was just about to go and have my, my bit, you know, my film bit done. And it was just a great moment. You know, I just stood there and I thought, wow, you know, put the phone down and then went and read the script. But uh, I think you always remember where, where you are when that happens, you know. Okay. What can you tell us about the, uh, the construction of that song and the recording of it? Tell us something well, about the, it. Well, there's a guy that I'd worked with in the past, Chaz Sanford, and he had a, we'd been working on a song, trying to get another song up and running for the album. I didn't think we had it. And the record company thought we did. And David Thorner was mixing and doing some overdubs with Gary Myrick in the studio. And I, I went to, I, I couldn't not do it. I went to work and me and Chaz were trying to write this song and it was a pretty good song, but it wasn't great. And I think I had the blues or whatever, but I went over to his house one night and he was trying to find the song on this reel to reel, this one inch tape, a nice machine. And uh, he didn't put any code on the machine, on the tape. So he was stopping the tape uh, periodically, you know, every hundred feet. Right. looking for this song and we couldn't find the song but he hit play and this eight note field piece came up gun, 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 gun. and that's really truly that's one of my bass favorite things in the babies too you know i could recognize the bass plan as being that's good so i, I said why don't we just give that a shot and he said it was wasn't even finished it was like just a, some chords you know um but I was interested, you know, so he put that on the, the headphones and I went in the spare room with the mic and he played me through and I sang and I found a kind of mood and then he hit record again at the top and I got missing you. I got the whole first verse and chorus in one piece, which could be the blues, you know, it could be being so far from home and it was off the top of my head. Um, one of my favorite singers, Steve Marriott, um, had a song called I'm Only Dreaming. Sure, with the small faces. Yeah. And at the end of the song, when I was in love with this girl that I didn't get or at all, but when I was about 14, mm. I used to listen to that endlessly, feeling suicidal, you know, as you do. Mm. And, and he says at the end, I can lie to myself. And I don't know whether I stole it off him or if it came out. I didn't plan to do it. It, I never, I was doing the vocal in the studio and I remember singing it. Right. And I didn't think it was a big deal. You know, it was just an aside. I always scap at the end of a song. It's like a jazz thing or something, blues, you know. But I just threw that in. And um, everybody went nuts, like, oh, I get it, you know. And I didn't, I just, that's, I can lie to myself. But the whole song was about um, denial. I'd been away so long and I was trying to get back home and I couldn't finish the record. So it's song about distance. I, I was thinking about um, Glenn Campbell's Witch Tall Line Man, the images of that, which is telegraph poles to me, and uh, Catch a Train by Free. Uh, that, a train coming into a station and stations being lonesome, you know, everything was just empty rooms and distance. Mm -hmm. and, um, I was just sort of painting it in my head, but that's what came out, you know. Okay. So uh, how did uh, Bad English come together then? Well, that's the story. Uh, I got off EMI, they changed from EMI America to EMI Manhattan, when I, right. middle of one of my records. <laughs> I'd gone to Germany yeah. and I was like number one on the radio and records. It was like John Wave, yeah. And I came back about six weeks later and it was like 78. It got like this, you know? <laughs> so uh, they, they spent a lot of money. They, they paid for videos and promotion, but they couldn't save it. It was caught in the changeover, you know? It's got its own way of going. I wasn't bitter. It was just, it happens all the time. Right. And they gave me a release. So Trudy Green, my manager, took me into Epic where she had friends and said, you should right. sign John Way. He's great, you know? And the A&R guy said, uh, really, you know, and uh, he didn't think I was a songwriter. And uh, if you look back at the babies and all that stuff, and you look back at Missing You, I, I thought that was a little bit off the mark. I've done a couple of covers in the past just to, because I love to sing something I haven't written, but I generally write 
everything I, I sing really, but he was going to find the songs he said, which made me kind of feel like, you'd, you know, I, I couldn't even relate. I, it was just like, no. And I didn't want to piss Trudy off or him. I, we, we left the office and I said, I can't work with that. And I want to be on Epic. I get it. And I know we'll have a hit, but I can't do that. Mm. And then we walked down Madison Avenue and I said, look, if I started a band, I could go back in there with three or four of the guys and I'd be bulletproof. You know, it would be very hard for anybody to talk down to four guys. Uh, maybe I outsmarted myself, you know, but um, <laughs> it took, I mean, it could have been inspired by Tin Machine, David really? Bowie. Yeah. I look back on it and I wondered, I mean, I've always got a plan. I've always got a plan. Uh, like I can always hatch something. I mean, if faced with a problem, I can come back the next day with the solution. I mean, I, I think on my feet. So I could have been a, a, a completely natural um, result of, of that conversation with the guy. Mm. But I mean, yeah, it could have been, but you contain ideas as you walk, you know, you, you just have them in the back of your mind. But I did, and it took about two months to uh, wind up back in California. I went to Britain looking for a guitar player. I went all over New York City, LA. Couldn't find anybody. And I wound up talking to Jonathan Kane. And, and I said to Trudy, it's keyboards, you know, it's not really what I'm looking for here. But we hit it off and we started writing and we got something. Then Neil came by, put guitar on. Neil sort of like became, instead of making two cups of coffee, you'd make three, right. you know, it was Neil. And then Ricky came down and played bass on it. And then after about a month of writing and just hanging, uh, Dean Castronova showed up with Neil. He'd played with him the night before in a club. And uh, Dean played fusion music for about 20 minutes and didn't get the job. <laughs> you know, he was just nervous and crazy and, uh, it was great though, but he came back about a week later. Neil tossed him down and said, just play, you know? And he came back and it was just outstanding, you know, just broke everybody's heart. You know, it was great. And that was the band. That was about English. You're listening to our conversation with John Waite, recorded exclusively for The Rock Podcast from his home in Santa Monica, California. Incidentally, uh, John's birthday is July 4th. And he became an American citizen in 2018. He has a lot to say about that and more. So here is the second part of John Waite. So you went back to uh, Epic and said, now I got a band or what, ha yeah. what happened? Yeah, that was exactly right. We went back, Trudy went back and said, listen, John's got half a journey, half of the babies, and um, we're going to manage it. Do you want in? They couldn't say no. Right really, when you think about it. And uh, I got my wish, really. I mean, we did actually do one of his songs, this A&R guy, When I See You Smile. Mm. We were, you know, I just felt bad for him because I'd kind of like sort of sideswiped him, really. But, uh, and his job is to do that. So, I mean, I mean, at the end of the album, I said, listen, man, let's cut the song, play it to the guy. He'll go, it doesn't work. Thanks for trying. I appreciate it. God bless you. And we cut the song and we were so good that we could have played, uh, you know, my old man's a dustman and it would have been a hit, you know, and we hit the Diane Warren vibe. Aerosmith were doing it, you know, and they were on frontline on HK. And um, it just seemed like an, a very natural, we got halfway through and everybody looked at each other like, Oh God, you know, it's a hit. And it, and it was like, it was like, it was a really cute, sweet moment. You know, it was like, you know, we're going to be number one. Mm. And then we were number one. And then we had like three or four top 20 singles after that. I mean, it was right. like, it was unstoppable, really. And why did it, uh, why did it break up so quick? Well, I don't think Jonathan Cairn and I ever really got on, but I think um, he's a character, you know. And uh, we didn't write on the road and we spent a year on the road, but uh, he was all business and, and, you know, wasn't, I mean, I, I just still to this day don't understand that kind of character, but hmm. we got into the second record and it was a mess. <clears throat> it was a mess. Who was producing that? 
Ron Nevison. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it was a mess, believe me. And uh, it almost came to blows with me and Ron. Mm. I mean, he was just so difficult. And I, I left, you know, at some point, I was, there was one day I was working on three songs with different writers to bring in something that we could kick into like Diane Warren strata. Right. And I came in the studio and we were cu cutting this idea and it, it was bullshit. You know, there was like personal nastiness and I, that's when me and Ron almost like, you know, had it, but I just walked out. Right. I finished the album with uh, Tony Phillips, a British engineer. I produced the vocals, but I gave him the credit. Mm -hmm. That was the right thing to do. And uh, went right back to New York. I, I tried to honor Trudy and uh, the people at Epic, but it was so unpleasant at that point. There was, I just wasn't, I, you know, you can go the extra mile and you can bite your tongue and you can, but there's, there's a line you don't cross, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was the wrong side of that line. So what, what did you decide to do after that? I, you're, I, you're, now you're, you're living in, in, in the States at that time, right? Yeah, no, I'm in New York. I bought a house in Pound Ridge when, when uh, after missing you, hmm. uh, Phil Ramon's house in Pound Ridge. It was a lovely big country house on uh, an acre, three quarters of an acre, deep at the end of a lane. It was a real retreat, you know, mm -hmm. and I was there. And I went back to, to that and I, I wintered, you know, I like got a couple of cases of wine, put them in the cellar, mm -hmm. ordered a couple of cords of wood and uh, watched a lot of TV, went for long country walks. And uh, uh, I was engaged at the time. So there was female company and it was kind of sweet, you know, it, but I didn't want to know about the music business. I'd had enough, it was just like that kind of stuff. It's just soulless, you know, and I just, I wasn't interested. And then I got offered a deal with uh, Imago. Right. It was a new boutique label and I, I made Temple Bar. But Temple Bar was the beginning. It's like, um, it's like, I, something had changed in me. And if I was gonna make another record, it was gonna be No Holds mm -hmm. Bar, kind of really solo. Downtown is on the, Right. Uh, which was a particularly dark song. Very, very New York. Uh, truthful, spiritually earning drugs hmm. a lot. And it was it was uh, it was a great record that hmm. the record company folded about two months into it. And it was very difficult. Right. But I eventually bought it back. I bought it back and released it again, remastered it, put bonus tracks on. But that's that's what happened at that point. That's... And then how did you get on the Ringo tour? They rang up. They, I don't know. You know, I, my manager rang up one day and said, are you still playing bass? And I went like, yeah, of course I am. <laughs> Speak with it, you know? And he says, you want to play with Ringo? And I went like, yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been offered a, a Broadway play. I was going to act. And I was really toying with that. It's because I, I was impressed with Bowie doing Elephant Man and and uh, I've always toyed with acting mm -hmm. and I thought I was going to do that. That was to be my summer winter. That was it. And then this phone call about Ringo and I thought, you know, I mean, who doesn't want to play with the Beatle? Right. You know, I, mean, I, I idolized Ringo when I was about 10. I wanted to be a drummer. Hmm. He's a superb drummer, you know, I mean, it's just Ringo. So, and then the phone rang. One day I was in the bathtub and it was Ringo. You know, hello, John. I'm just calling up from England, man, you know. Mm. And um, I jumped out of the bathtub and I got the phone in one hand. I go, Ringo, how are you doing, you know? <laughs> and um, you're in the band, you know. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's, I'm glad I did it. It was, uh, a little rough around the edges sometimes. Everybody had their own songs. Everybody, you know, Sheila Ree. That's that you could have used Bootsy Collins better right. for that. You know, that that's like a, a that's a challenge. But the rest of it was was simple. But it's a lot of songs to learn. Two hours on stage without a break. Who, who that, are some of the Who are some of the other uh, people on that on that tour? Uh, well, there was Paul Carrick. Okay. Squeeze. How long? Living years. You know, 
uh, Colin Hay, you know, um, down under, and all that, and Sheila Reed, you know, um, or Sheila. You know, the songs really, um, as the artistic, you know, as the musical director said at some point, hmm. before we did our first gig, they filmed them, they said, we thought we could have actually beaten off more than we could chew because the styles were so, I mean, Colin's songs are like almost reggae with a big plot, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, Paul's songs are just incredibly beautiful. And he is such an incredible keyboard player. You know, he played New York City Girl for me at Radio City. He played the just me and him on stage mm -hmm. with, with Mark, the, key, the, the musical director playing sax. But uh, to hear somebody play that well is, uh, it puts you in perspective, you know. And Sheila Ree, you know, just very good musicians. What did you think of the Beatles when you were growing up? Well, they were like God. You know, I mean, I, I've never been that religious, I'm spiritual, but I think music has been, or art, art has been my religion. Painting, music, theater, literature, right. anything. Creation, you know, it's mirroring what's already there and trying to describe it. But the Beatles, um, the word coalesced, you know, when you've got disparate things and all these different things groove you, you, you love them, you don't know why that, you're, I was only like nine, but um, everything coalesced with the Beatles. It was like fashion, extremely gifted musicians that were still finding their way, the image, of four working class lads from Liverpool mm -hmm. that were a match for anybody intellectually. They didn't put any on any airs. I mean, it was just like, um, Sting said that about the Beatles, that they were, they were his gods, you know? And it's not sacrilegious. It means that you learn through their music, you learn life. And uh, they guided me right up to psychedelia and my experiences with that uh, made more beautiful because of the music they made. I watched McCartney 321 last night. How did you like it? Very much. I think Paul, uh, it's the first time I've seen Paul completely uh, at ease. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't having to parry you know, and Bob and Weave. He mm -hmm. just sat there, played the piano. He seemed very honest and gave credit, you know, to a lot of the people around like George Martin and Ringo for stuff. I thought it was great. I mean, um, you know, you're talking about like somebody who's, who's musical beyond all kind of understanding. Right. You've got Paul McCartney. And I think intellectually, John Lennon being such a, a tormented soul, really. They show it in different ways, but the backstory on both those guys is profound. Mm. And uh, if you go with Lennon, like there's a place from that idea of being in the back of your head where nobody can get to you through to Strawberry Fields, the White Album, Happiness is a Warm Gun, Julia, and then it's a working class hero. I mean, these two guys are poolers, we call them in England. I'm Lancaster, my hometown, is only 70 miles away. But to have two of the most ridiculously gifted human beings in modern history in the same town, the same age, and start a band together, mm. you would start to question uh, if there isn't a higher plan or whatever. It's just <laughs> like, how do you manage to get two people it isn't Rogers and Hammerstein. It isn't like, you know, you know, it changed the world. And then they had Ringo Starr, who is the most musical, insanely, uh, I mean, you couldn't imagine anybody playing drums in the Beatles, even on their first album. He was that good. <laughs> and then you wind up with Rain, and he's like, you know, and then you have George, who's this spiritual guy, who's like this craftsman. He wrote Taxman. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a point where it's surreal. You know, it's yeah. almost like the Church of the Beatles, you know.
And, um, I, you know, I was surprised last night watching, I've, I've saved the last episode for today sometime, but I was, I was really renewed, renewed in my, in my, uh, appreciation. Mm. Okay. So let me ask you what's, uh, what's on the immediate future. Are uh, you going to write a book? You're going to, uh, tell your life story. What are you going to do? Well, there's a documentary that got filmed this year and it'll be, it's finished. What's it called? Uh, the hard way. Hmm. Nobody, inter nobody interviewed me. Well, <laughs> uh, to be, you know, one minute, uh, you're trying to <clears throat> get from A to B and live right. and breathe and be a human being in a pandemic lockdown. And then you put, somebody puts a, a, a camera underneath your nose and says, all right, give us the truth. Right. And you're so angry at the world. You're so coiled up like a snake. You know, it's like, you're not the person you should be. But I told a lot of things that were true that mm -hmm. might have put me in a bad light or like I tried to explain my life. I was honest and um, maybe too honest. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people said some incredibly kind things about me that I, I saw one, I saw Neil Giraldo's, I saw a snippet of that. And that was, I was very moved by that. I couldn't believe he said it, hmm. but they, they, they invite people into my, uh, I mean, to just say what they were going to say. The people from EMI, the people from Chrysalis wouldn't come and talk about it, which <laughs> obviously uh, they'd fucked up so badly that they didn't want to be in the room. But uh, me and my girlfriend here, we, they had the whole crew came into this, where I live. Right. Into the studio, into the local bookshop that I live at and just film my life. And that's coming. When will it be out? I don't know, next year. Mm -hmm. It'll be at the film festivals and then it, it might be on Netflix or HBO or Hulu or whatever. I don't know. Who directed but, uh, it? Who's the director? Uh, well, who's the director? The, the same guy, AJ, the same guy that uh, directed the uh, David Crosby. Uh, you know, I just know them all by their first names. Right. Norm That's okay. Wait. Norm Waite from uh, Gold Circle Films. Okay. Bankrolled it. Um, he had like... Uh, my Greek, big fat Greek wedding and all that. So he's made a, mm -hmm. some major films, you know, but he was interested in the story and uh, bankroll, the whole thing has got a major budget. So, but I'm just like I'm saying, it's, it's the weirdest thing to, it's okay doing an interview and being blunt. Right. And getting to the truth. But when you're being filmed and you're really trying to be honest for this, for just out of respect for the medium and, and for your own life and the people that you loved or, Mm -hmm. You had differences, you know, you owe it to the camera. Right. You owe it to your legacy to tell the truth to a point. Mm. I mean, I think if, if we all told the complete truth about our lives, we'd probably have to go and live on a desert island or you couldn't live with yourself. Right. I mean, memory is one thing, but man, it's been, been a long road, you know. Any plans to do a autobiography? Well, I, I started to, you know, to run in along side of the book, I, I started to write about it. Mm -hmm. And I write about Lancaster. I was born at 12 o'clock on the 4th of July. Right. And that the local whistle went off at the local factory at the same time that I probably screened. And, um, but you look at Lancaster and it's an ancient city with a castle, mm -hmm. a river, all these beautiful, strange buildings that were built by mega industrialists in the working for the working man. It's really sort of like Dickensian Northwest. You can't describe it. I mean, you listen to Penny Lane and it's a pretty good song about a, a roundabout where buses right. are on a fish and chip shop. Right. But when you have the it's the county town of Lancashire and my, all my relations and, and the impact, you would never understand it. You'd never get it. Do you know that, um, is it The Entertainer, the movie, uh, Lawrence Olivier? Yeah. That was filmed four miles from where I was born. And that's 50s Northwest. And that's where I came up. Mm. And uh, we used to go to Morecambe. It was filmed in Morecambe. Mm -hmm. But working class and very great people, very truthful very hardy, very loyal, very musical. 
and gifted. A lot of them are really extraordinary people, but how do you describe that? Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I come up with the idea that maybe I would just ramble in the studio into the mic and then edit it. Have hmm. somebody come in, ask me five key questions. Right. And I would just say, this is what happened. But being a fan of literature and reading a lot, when you see how it's done properly, my gift is songwriting or painting. It doesn't necessarily mean I can write a book and I will not use a ghostwriter. Hmm. If it's going to be me, it's me all the way. And the only way I can see me doing it is to, to verbalize it and, um, and then edit it. I got a couple more questions and then we'll let you go. I hope I'm not uh, exceeding my oh, time. No, I, I, I hope I'm not rambling on too much, but it's- No, uh, no, this is great. Yeah. I feel like I'm, you know, this is this is a great uh, a great conversation. So um, you got the, uh, the the Wooden Heart album. Is it available? Uh, is it out on vinyl? No. Are you looking to put it out on vinyl? I hadn't thought of that. I mean, okay. some of the tracks some of the tracks come from um, uh, the best sources I have. If right. you put it on vinyl, if it doesn't come off tape. I think an audio file would have a, a nervous breakdown. Now, there's, talked some, about, there's some really good engineers that can take care of that. Yeah, you know, because Temple Bar, I want to release Temple Bar, and I've had an offer to release it mm -hmm. on vinyl. I would love to, that's kind of like um, the highest note, that and the new one. Right. But uh, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, if there was somebody that could look at it. Right. And I mean, I work with the best. And um, I'm working with Tom Weir. He masters my stuff. Right. And he does everybody that's like in, in Rod, everybody. I right. mean, and his gear is the best. I mean, it's, it's unspeakably good. But I don't know if you could be taken any further, but I don't know. I don't mm. know. Okay. But that's an idea. Yeah. And something else I wanted to ask you, because actually this interview between us came about because you're pretty active on social media. Is that you? Yeah. Or do you have guys oh, no, that do that no 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 it's me i everything that's posted is from me i just got a guy in holland water that um if i can't get on sometimes to facebook right uh it blocks me sometimes i have no idea what's going probably because i'm in a different country and it originates out of holland right could be that but uh i just send him the photographs or the or the uh the, what i want to say to people and he just puts it on sometimes it allows me to do it myself but I, uh, I have easy access to LinkedIn. And, yeah, that's, uh, that's, as, where, that's where I yeah, saw you, yeah, on LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah, and Twitter. So I, mm -hmm. I try to, um, I'm pretty opinionated. So if I say something um, political, mm -hmm. uh, I'm no stranger to uh, the odd rebuke. Uh, people going nuclear, you know, fuck you, man. Right. You know, we don't need you. Fuck you. And that's because I said something about Afghanistan or Palestine right. or um, free speech or being vaccinated. But you'd be amazed at how many people suddenly go like, fuck you, man. Mm. You can't fucking sing. I'm out of here. And I just, you know, email back like, fuck off. You know, you're not supposed to do that. But I don't want anybody on my site that actually thinks like that. So it's, it's not like it's a, they're helping me weed out the idiots, you know. I don't know how many people know, but a couple of years ago, you became a U.S. citizen, right? I did. I did. It was, um, I think it was time, way past time. I think uh, this has been my home on and off, you know, for a large part of my life. And uh, I love America. I believe in it. And I think it's, uh, as Dylan said about music, it's always in a state of becoming. He wants to be in a state of becoming. I think America is... It's like the test tube of the world, you know. I mean, it's, this is always going to be in a state of becoming, right? And um, it's never going to be peaceful. It's never been a peaceful country. Uh, the idea would be to uh, have a vote, so that when something comes up, you have a voice, right? You don't just be disgruntled on the internet and say, "Well, you know," hmm. you get in there and you make a difference, right? And um, I think that's you walk the walk, right? And, and if you don't vote, you don't walk in the walk. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for your generous time. I'm glad we finally hooked up. 
Even oh, it's great, happy. man. I, I appreciate the um, the conversation. It's always nice to uh, to get into it, you know. But you were well, a good interview. I, I appreciate it. Thank uh, you. And I look forward um, to seeing you uh, somewhere. So that was my conversation with John Waite as we bring you the best stories from the world of rock in the artist's own voices. You've been listening to The Rock Podcast with me, Denny Somak. You can send a note through the website, therockpodcast.com, or just uh, email us at hello at therockpodcast.com. So that's it for this episode. Tell your friends, keep in touch, and goodbye for now. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.